Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 286. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. The weather has changed, yes, for the better now, in my little village on the north coast of England. Yes, we've got some, we've had some sunshine. Be damned. There you go. There's a, there's a first for a while. So it's looking good here. So I hope everyone around the world has some nice weather as well. The start of the nice weather as well. Apart from going down in Australia, where you're probably kicking into your window there times now. So, but tell you what's coming today's show. We have part one of David Mercurio Riviera. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to play two stories, one story, total separate stories, one story this week and one story next week. Two shows dedicated to David, because I just think one of the guys that's kind of such an exciting writer. Do you know what I mean? It's just fantastic. I'll tell you what's coming in this show then. First off, we have the science news with our very own Mr. JJ Campanella. Then there will be an interview with David that I carried out. And this will be a kind of a separate little avenue as well for Starship Sofa. Because if you go over to YouTube, you'll actually see myself and David carry out this interview. And it's like I say, it's every time I do an interview there now, I'm hopefully going to try and record them, the video as well, and stick them up on YouTube and call that the Observation Deck. Now, I know Cheryl Morgan had that little, and where Cheryl talked about, you know, the different events and conventions going around, but, you know, whatever they want to recycle something from Starships over. So I'm calling that the Observation Deck. So, you know, you'll be able to kind of subscribe to that as well and have a look. You know, when we do interviews, I can, I can actually show pictures of book covers because David's got a new book out there now. And, you know, I can show diff- different images as well as, you know, 
David and myself or anybody else for that matter. So, but I will actually put the audio in every time we do one of these. I'll still put the audio in the show. Do you know what I mean? Kind of do it that way as well. So you get to hear it, you know, no matter what. Then we have David's story, the first one, which is for Love's Delirium Haunts, The Fractured Mind. And that is narrated by Joe Samarco. And like I say, the following week, we'll have another one by David called Tethered, which is narrated by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. What a show! What two shows! So, we'll jump straight in then with Science News, Mr. J.J. Campanella. Greetings and obfuscations, my fine listeners, and welcome to this April 2013 Science News Update. I'm your host for this marvelous marvel of a marvelicious science podcast, Jim Campanella. This has been another one of those months where I have gotten a bunch of emails from listeners. Most of those emails this month have insisted that I needed to tell the first story of the night. Listeners, Jack Romingham, Linda Otis, and Oleg Castro all wanted me to talk about the sex life of the tetrahymena. What is a tetrahymena? Well, frankly, tetrahymena is an organism that I have never found very interesting. But the public has spoken. Seriously, though, tetrahymena is an advanced, single-celled, ciliated organism. And although not my personal favorite, it has been a favorite research subject for experimental biologists for decades. The tetrahymena has been studied thoroughly for all those many, many years, but even the most studied organism sometimes will provide you with a new surprise or two. Even though it is single-celled, tetrahymena cannot reproduce by itself. Tetrahymena of different mating types have to come together and mate, and it has been more than 50 years since scientists have recognized that this organism actually has not two, but up to seven different mating types. Dr. Edward Orius of the University of California, Santa Barbara, has just reported in the journal Plus Biology in March that his research group has figured out how mating types are determined in the tetrahymena. Now let me make a point. The reason that so many people sent me this story is that they were intrigued when they read that tetrahymena has seven different sexes. But we are not talking about an animal here nor are we talking about seven different potential sets of genitalia being positioned in any one of myriad ways. Very specifically, we are talking about mating types based on DNA differences and what is called mating incompatibility. Yes, the sexes involved here just have some minor variations in their genomes that either make them able to mate or not. We are not talking about gender-bending ciliates here. Aureus clarifies this by stating, quote, You don't see any shape or other differences to denote the mating type, but there are chemical differences on the cell surface that allow cells to contact one another, and if they are different sexes, they can mate and reproduce, unquote. To me, this is about the broadest definition of sex you can possibly have, or gender as the case may be. How sex was determined in tetrahymena offspring was unknown, but Aureus had a suspicion that DNA arrangement could be involved in some way. He decided to take a closer look at the cell's germline nucleus, one of the organism's two nuclei. The germline nucleus is where genetic information for the progeny are stored. Aureus says, quote, 
The first step to understanding sex determination was to genetically map the germline mating type locus. We were able to narrow down its location by a combination of linkage mapping and other genetic techniques, unquote. The group then discovered that the germline nucleus for each mating type contained a tandem array of six incomplete gene pairs. A tandem array just means that these were sets of genes one after another after another. When the organism mated, one of those incomplete pairs matched up in the new cell's second nuclei, the somatic nuclei, while the remaining five pairs were deleted, giving the progeny exactly one gene pair and exactly one sex. Aurea says, quote, By studying a system like tetrahymena, where everything is programmed, where we know where to go to look for different events, we can have a better understanding of these DNA rearrangement processes. It can help us investigate many different questions. And as we learn more about the genes in tetrahymena that correspond to genes in humans, we may see some important application to human diseases, unquote. I'm really sorry that the whole seven sexes thing is not as racy as it first sounded. Besides the tetrahymena story, I got email from listener Stav Levi about emotion in plants. You may remember some months back that I pointed out that plants have no nervous system, but can react at the molecular level to gas-like signals that are emitted by nearby plants. Stav does not believe that I gave the theory of plant emotion enough serious consideration. Now, here's the exact wording of my original statement. Quote, The hypothesis that plants have emotions is utter nonsense. It was nonsense 30 years ago when it was first suggested, and it is still nonsense. If one plant is damaged when another is nearby, it will release a series of hormonal gases, chief among which is something called jasminate. These hormonal gases alter the physiology of the nearby plants and may even cause depolarization of membranes, which are observed on the lie detector. The system is in place in order to signal to nearby plants that one is being eaten or damaged by predators. The nearby plants then alter their physiological makeup to better deal with the possibility of being damaged. Plants do not fear or have other emotions. You must have a complex nervous system to feel emotions, and plants do not have that. Unquote. Because he wanted further input, Stav sent me this response from Dr. Rod Savage, Ph.D., Faculty of Forestry and Environmental Management, University of New Brunswick. Dr. Savage said, quote, Anything is possible until proven impossible. Moreover, there have been many solid scientific contributions published on electrical phenomenon in plants. And those who have made negative remarks about the possibility of plant emotions seem to be ignorant of the research that has been done. Electrical signaling, hence information transfer, is entirely plausible, unquote. First of all, I have to disagree with the statement that anything is possible until proven impossible. You can't prove anything impossible. Proving negatives makes no sense in science. But I suppose, based on Dr. Savage's statements, that everything is possible because we can never disprove anything. Okay, second, I stick by my statements. No nervous system, no brain, no emotion. We are not talking about animals here and whether they are reacting by instinct or not. We are talking radishes. 
So lots of electrical activity has been found in plants. I won't argue with that. So what? Bacteria have lots of electrical activity. So does every living cell on the face of the earth. By definition, a living cell generates an electrical current. If it is alive, then it is creating an ionic gradient at the plasma membrane that separates it from the outside world. Does the fact that yeast alter their ionic membrane gradient during the process of fermentation mean that they are happy for the alcohol that they are making? I doubt it. Does the fact that bacteria change their electrical activity when chemotaxing in on food, does that mean that they are pleased to be near a meal? I doubt that too. Does the constant change of the electrical system through the heart mean that each individual heart cell is happy? I have no idea, but that doesn't seem likely. The only thing that separates yeast from plants are a few extra cells, and they are still lacking any kind of neural transmission system. Electrical signaling does not equate to emotion. It just means a signal is present. I'm sorry, Stav, and Doc Savage too, until you come back to me with some serious data that cannot be explained away using Occam's razor, you're not going to convince me that my roses are happy because it's sunny. I'm not ignorant of plant physiology literature and have never seen any convincing data that supports such a hypothesis. The next story of the night involves exoplanets. I have not given you guys a good update in a while, so here we go. So if we waited long enough, you knew that it would eventually happen. Astronomers have finally gotten such a detailed look at an exoplanet that they have been able to examine its atmosphere for the first time. Dr. Quinn Konopaki and his team at the University of Toronto have detected light coming directly from a planet 130 light years away. And we are talking about direct detection, just as direct as being able to see Jupiter or Venus or, for that matter, Pluto. They have just reported their findings in the March 14th issue of Science. Kotopaki's data have high enough resolution to reveal not only the presence of water and carbon dioxide, but the abundance of them in the planet's atmosphere. Unfortunately, the planet HR8799C has no life because it is too big and not in the life zone of the star. HR799C is 5 to 10 times more massive than Jupiter and sits about 8 times farther away from its star than Jupiter does from our Sun. Because of that great distance, the astronomers could block the star's light and record infrared light from the planet using the Keck 2 10-meter telescope in Hawaii. Because different gases absorb and emit light in distinct ways, the team could identify carbon dioxide and water, but they found no methane, which scientists thought might be present. In another new study in the Astrophysical Journal, March 11th, another group of researchers simultaneously collected infrared light from the atmospheres of all four planets orbiting the star HR8799 using the 200-inch Hale Telescope at Caltech's Palomar Observatory. That team was led by Dr. Ben Oppenheimer, astrophysicist at the American Museum of Natural History, and they found hints of ammonia, methane, carbon dioxide, and acetylene in the planet's atmospheres. Oppenheimer says, quote, The chemistry of each planet varies. They're different from anything in our own solar system, unquote. 
So let's turn to a different direction. New research was published last month in the journal Current Biology by an international team of researchers led by Dr. Sonia Kleindorfer at Flinders University in Australia. And her work explains how fairy wrens can tell their chicks apart from invading cuckoo chicks. Now, if you don't know about cuckoos, let me fill you in. Cuckoos are probably the laziest birds on the face of the earth. Cuckoos lay their eggs in the nests of other species. If undetected, the cuckoo chick will throw out the host's own chicks, obtaining exclusive care from its foster parent. Alternatively, if the host catches on, the cuckoo chick will be abandoned and left to die. While some birds endure high rates of cuckoo parasitism, others, such as Australia's fairy wren, appear to have gained a leg up on those rotten little parasites. And they do this by, well, egg whispering, if you want to call it that, and it is quite literally egg whispering. Unlike most species, which reject cuckoos on the basis of visual cues, fairy wrens instead reject cuckoos using acoustic recognition. Until now, how exactly the wren mother distinguished her own chicks from the cuckoos remained a mystery. But using detailed audiovisual monitoring, Kleindorfer spied on the fairy wren females while they set up their nests. During egg incubation, she discovered a novel, quote, incubation call, unquote, that mother fairy wrens produce at a high rate. And embedded within that call is a signature element, a password, essentially, that chicks repeat following hatching. What is even more amazing is that each wren mother produces a different password, and the chicks of each nest learn only the appropriate message of that nest and of that mother. So, fairy wrens are not born with a password hardwired to their brains, but rather they have to learn it as an embryo from within the egg. So, what does that do to help fairy wrens thwart cuckoo invasions? Well, very simple. Mama only feeds the hungry chicks who sing back the password. One big question is why the cuckoos don't also learn the code song to fool Mama. The authors seem to think that it has to do with the timing of when the cuckoo egg is present in the nest. In a normal nest, fairy wren eggs are exposed to their mother's lessons for around five days. And the more a mother teaches, that is, the more often she repeats the password, the more reliably the chicks can repeat it back upon hatching. By contrast, the cuckoo eggs are only on average exposed to the password for around two days. And this is apparently not long enough for a cuckoo embryo to get the hang of it. So when the cuckoo hatches and fails to provide the secret handshake, the mother assumes that the chick is not her own and leaves it to die. Uh, what did Tennyson call it? Nature red in tooth and claw? What can you do? Next story, HeLa cells. Know what HeLa cells are? Well, HeLa cells were cervical cancer cells taken from a patient by the name of Henrietta Lacks back in 1952. They were named after her, H-E for Henrietta, and L-A for her last name, Lacks, H-E-L-A, HeLa. HeLa cells are now the most widely used cell line in human biology. 
Since 1952, HeLa cells have contributed to over 60,000 publications, including the development of the polio vaccine and research that led to two Nobel Prizes. But how much do we really know about these cells? Well, for years I've been saying to my genetics classes that the one thing about cancer cells is that once they become cancer cells initially, they simply get more and more unstable. Cancer cells are as prone to change as a six-month-old baby. I figure that anything that has been around since the 1950s, changing, altering, and mutating in a Petri dish, would be seriously, and I do mean seriously, messed up. And I was right. Dr. Lars Steinmetz of the European Molecular Biology Laboratory in Heidelberg, who led the project, published the first full HeLa genome sequence this month in the journal Genes, Genomes, and Genetics. They found, well, no surprise at least to me, that HeLa cells have a chaotic combination of gene duplications, deletions, and massive chromosomal alterations and rearrangements. The HeLa genome includes chromosomes that have been shattered and then haphazardly pieced back together. It's got deletions, it's got additions with genes of five or more copies apiece per chromosome and aberrant gene expression pathways that differ dramatically from normal human tissues or cells. These findings can have a profound impact on how HeLa cells are used in the laboratory, the authors say, because now they know that these cells are not even close to how human cells function. Worse than that, they're not even close to how most cancer cell lines function. So you have to ask yourself whether they are a good model for anything at all. As incredible as it seemed to me when I read it, the HeLa genome has not been previously sequenced. Since sequencing is now cheap, Steinmetz and his team sequenced both HeLa DNA and RNA. They performed 1.1 billion DNA reads, each 101 base pairs in length, with 450 million RNA sequences being read. These were all from a particular cell line called the HeLa Kyoto line. They found for the first time a new phenomenon called chromosome shattering, in which chromosomes appear to have been broken apart and then reassembled with countless regions inverted or in the wrong order. Chromosome shattering is associated with 2 to 3% of all cancers. In this instance, the authors suggest that it was likely original to the source of the HeLa cells, Henrietta Lacks cervical tumor. Other HeLa characteristics probably evolved as the cells adapted over decades to life in the lab. Through RNA analysis, the team found that HeLa gene expression is dramatically different from gene expression in normal human tissues. Cell cycle and DNA repair pathways are turned up, which would be expected for rapidly dividing cells. Genes associated with immune system and environmental sensing are turned down, which would be expected for cells adapted to an isolated, nutrient-rich lab setting. Steinmetz says, quote, We're using these cells as our workhorse to study human biology, and if we have these genomic rearrangements, that's clearly going to have some impact on the interpretation of gene function that we're carrying out, unquote. For experiments in which genomic abnormalities don't matter and scientists just need a lot of biological material quickly, HeLa cells are still suitable, at least that's what Steinmetz says. 
But for genetic studies, he insists that the individual researcher has to decide if HeLa cells are the appropriate model for addressing the research problem at hand. To finish off the night, I just wanted to address a paper that a couple of colleagues suggested I discuss. They both had smirks on their faces when they told me about this paper, and you'll see why shortly. Doctors Vladimir I. Shcherbak of Al-Farabi Kazakh National University of Kazakhstan and Maxim A. Makukov from the Fensenkov Astrophysical Institute have just published an article in the journal Icarus that suggests that humans were planted here on Earth by aliens and that all proof that we need to support that hypothesis can be found in the human genome. The abstract for their paper from Icarus reads like the plot to the next Prometheus movie. Quote, It has been repeatedly proposed to expand the scope for SETI, and one of the suggested alternatives to radio is the biological media. Genomic DNA is already used on Earth to store non-biological information. The code is a flexible mapping between codons and amino acids, and this flexibility allows modifying the code artificially. But once fixed, the code might stay unchanged over cosmological timescales. In fact, it is the most durable construct known. Therefore, it represents an exceptionally reliable storage for an intelligent signature, if that conforms to biological and thermodynamic requirements. As the actual scenario for the origin of terrestrial life is far from being settled, the proposal that it might have been seated intentionally cannot be ruled out. Here we show that the terrestrial code displays a thorough precision-type orderliness matching the criteria to be considered an informational signal. Simple arrangements of the code reveal an ensemble of arithmetical and ideographical patterns of the same symbolic language. The null hypothesis that they are due to chance, coupled with presumable evolutionary pathways, is rejected with a p-value of less than 10 to the minus 13th. The patterns are profound to the extent that the code mapping itself is uniquely deduced from their algebraic representation. The signal displays readily recognizable hallmarks of artificiality, among which are the symbol of zero, the privileged decimal syntax, and semantical symmetries. Besides, extraction of the signal involves logically straightforward but abstract operations, making the patterns essentially irreducible to any natural origin, unquote. I wish I could just discount or dismiss these guys as being completely nuts, but weird as it is, they make a compelling argument that actual non-biological info may be encoded into our DNA. How is that possible? Well, if you were to give completely random versus encoded data to a cryptologist, the cryptologist would recognize what they were seeing was indeed random or not, based on a whole set of statistical analyses. These guys did something similar and say that what they are seeing is not just random patterns in DNA. They state in their conclusions, quote, to be considered unambiguously as an intelligent signal, any patterns in the code must satisfy the following two criteria. One, they must be highly significant statistically. And two, 
Not only must they possess intelligent-like features, but they should be inconsistent in principle with any natural processes, be that Darwinian or Lamarckian or evolutionary, unquote. And frankly, I think that they demonstrated number one to be the case, since statistically, it is highly unlikely that you would get an unnatural pattern from such biological data but it is unclear whether they have shown those features to be inconsistent with natural processes. I have to give them credit, though, because they wisely stay away from a prolonged discussion of the panspermia theory, suggesting that humans were planted here. They simply say that their observations may be in agreement with such a phenomenon being true. I'm just thinking about the Gila story. These guys seem to think the DNA is such a great way to pass along information because it is so stable. And it certainly wasn't that stable in the case of the HeLa cells. See, I just don't believe that human DNA will stay as stable as they seem to think, except under serious selection restrictions, which only applies to DNA that codes for genes. The rest of the genome that does not regulate genes is under what is called neutral selection. What that means is that that DNA is free to mutate and mutate and mutate again because it's not doing any serious job in the genome. And the fact of the matter is, a high percentage of the DNA in the human genome, up to 90%, doesn't appear to have an important impact on DNA expression or protein expression at all. And so what ends up happening is, is you have lots and lots of alterations and changes going on in a large proportion of the genome. So it's not entirely clear to me how they can make statements like the fact that DNA is so stable. I mean, exactly what did they look at? It seemed to me they were looking mostly at genes and not at non-coding regions. If they were indeed looking at highly conserved genes, then I have to question really what they're thinking, because how they conserve genes, genes that haven't changed literally in millions or billions of years, are not just human. They have been around in one form or another since bacteria evolved. So essentially, if we're talking about genes that are similar to those that have been around in other organisms for a huge amount of time, huge evolutionary amount of time, well then, what meaning is it to say that the human genome has messages hidden in it, because it wouldn't just be the human genome, it would be every genome on the face of the earth. It's a very confusing point, and I'm not entirely sure whether I believe these gentlemen or not. Uh, I mean, their hypothesis is so dependent on DNA stability that that I'm just not convinced it's even possible. So whether they're looking at non-coding DNA, which is not stable, or they're looking at coding DNA, which is stable, it just, it, it still doesn't make much sense. I mean, I'm a geneticist and I know too much about DNA change to be convinced that it can be stable over millions of years to pass along the equivalent of some intergalactic romance novel. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care, avoid growing HeLa cells around rogue Prometheans, and I hope I have inspired some of you. Until next time. This is Jim Campanella.
Jim, my man. Jim, Jim, what can I say? Another email of Jim as well saying, Tony, I was so busy this this month. It's so lucky you got it. So what can I say, Jim? Big thank you, man. So big a thank you. You know, just keep on doing that. And I know you're busy, man. I know. <laughs> I don't really. You know what I mean? It's just how you, man. Get the thing done, man, for God's sake. Right then. Before we get into the main fiction, which, like I say, I mentioned before, is Love's Delirium Horns, The Fractured Mind. Going to play a little interview by David. And like I say, it's up on YouTube now as well. So you can go over and have a look at our bonnie selves and think, <laughs> they have got radio faces, them too. <laughs> so we have on the observation deck for the very first time, we have David Mercurio Riviera. David, sir, nice to have you on board. Tony, thank you so much for having me. It's hey, a real pleasure. Hey, it's been lovely. Yes. Now, David, listen, I've been kind of probably a fan of yours for, oh, kind of since you first discovered, you know, I first kind of discovered you, you know, on the Starship sofa there. And I'll tell you what I was thinking about before. It was pretty, I still don't know now where to kind of label you, David. You know, I, you know, because I, you know, Starship sofa is primarily science fiction, but I wouldn't really say you're purely science fiction. Well, it's funny because I do. I think that in a couple of stories, I do cross over into some dark. I would say, so I would call it horror, actually. But I would, I would call myself a science fiction writer. Actually, I think most of my stories tend to fall into that classic science fiction category. Uh, it's just, it just so happens that a few of the prominent ones, like uh, I had a story called "Tu Sufrimiento Shall Protect Us," that was nominated for the World Fantasy Award back in 2011. That was. I would say pretty hardcore horror. Um, and I think because of that story, primarily people don't realize that I am um, primarily a science fiction writer when you, when you pull it down. See, that's exactly what I was talking about. You know what I mean? It's like you, you, you're sometimes surprised we're all with these kind of the stories. But, you know, it's the kind of science fiction ones that I just find, you know, and it's the kind, I think as well, it's the emotion that you, you bring to a story. You know, I was talking about, that um, I think it was called Snatch Me Another. Now that one, David, I just honestly, the hairs on the back of my neck would, would spring up, you know, when that kind of, because we got that on audio. And when we listened to that, you know, when I listened to that, that story was just packed with the more, as well as a cool idea of, you know, reaching in and pinching kids, you know what I mean? Which is, a, you know, that was just so like gut-wrenching as well. But what a story. Yeah, well, thank you, Tony. You know, it's funny, it started off with an image that I had of, just an arm snaking through a portal from another dimension and reaching down and grabbing something and snatching it back. And I thought, wow, what, it just came up with that image. And I thought, that's a great idea for a story. And then you're right. I think that I wanted to um, definitely put some emotion into it. And in all my stories, I think that you have to make the reader feel something or else the story is a failure. This, you, know, you can put lots of action and, and that's fine. But without that, that emotion... Um, the story in my mind doesn't succeed. You have to make the reader feel something. So, so tell us then, when, when did you start writing then? I would say sometime around 2004 or so. I, you know, I had a full-time job. I still have a full-time job, obviously, but I had decided that um, I was going to take a couple years off and um, take a, a writing course, which I did. And it was being taught at the new school here in Manhattan, by, and Terry Bisson happened to be one of the uh, happened to be the instructor for the science fiction writing course, and I'd read Terry's work before and, and really admired him. And I thought, uh, let me give this a shot. I took the course, absolutely, you know, loved Terry, loved the 
love the, his approach to constructing a story. He has a very mechanical approach that I think matches my style perfectly, which is he made us all start with, uh, he, he had us all write beginnings of the story, then the middles, then the ends. Um, and we had to pitch the story before we started writing it. So I thought that was a very interesting approach. So I started, I started with Terry's course and um, just took off from there. And I so saw I made my first sale around 2006 or so after two years of trying. And, um, and since then, things have really taken off. I've sold over you know, 25 stories since then. Um, but that's how I got started. Wow. I didn't realize actually you'd sold so many stories, 25 stories. That's a, um, a hell of a lot. Does, are you still, because we've had you on the show you know, once before as well, do, do you still, from what you picked up with Terry Bisson's lessons, do you still put them into practice today? Do you know what I mean? Or do you sometimes oh. construct a story that's just totally left field of what Terry taught you? You know what? I, I really do follow Terry's formula every time. <laughs> <laughs> so tried and true. So his, his, his approach is always come up with your idea and then uh, just, just I, I use bullet points and it's, people have different techniques, but I just do my bullet points. Scene one, this is what happens. Scene two, and you know, usually it's four or five bullet points. He, is, he always emphasizes, you know, do, tell a story in as few scenes as possible with as few characters as possible. Um, and, you know, I have my bullet points. Usually it's just one page. I and um, once I do that, and sometimes I will agonize over that one page for weeks and sometimes months. Oh, it's- that's what I love. You know, I, honestly, I, it, I get such a kick because I'm like way, way, way back, failed writer miserably. You know what I mean? Don't, don't even want to go there and talk yeah. about it. But I love it when it just kind of, you know, it's almost like cutting veins to get the words out on it. Because I was going to ask you that. Is it sometimes as bad as that to get a story down? It can be. It can be. You know, it, what really helps me is, um, and I, th- I think this is because of my background. I'm, I'm, I'm an attorney during the day, <laughs> writer by night, and um, I'm very deadline oriented. So I, I find often that because I'm in, I'm in a writing group, and sometimes I offer to, to present a story to the group, I have a deadline. So as a result of that, I'll stay up all night if necessary and get it done. Without that deadline, it's very difficult for me to be productive. Other, other folks, other writers, will say, you know, I have to put in my one hour a day and be very productive. For me, that's very difficult without it, without some sort of external deadline. So um, that drives me. But yeah, getting the words out can be very difficult. But once I have my outline done, once I have that one page finished after lots of agonizing, then I feel the story itself actually comes a lot easier. I, you know, I feel like I'm writing with direction. And... I mean, uh, now, you, you know, we'll talk, we've talked, uh, I think, as well about, you know, your kind of your altered fluid writing, writers group. But mm-hmm. now when you pen a story, David, you know, like say you've been down the line, you've been in this game, uh, you know, a, a couple of years there now. Does uh-huh. everyone basically get sold when you write them? Are you, are you writing the order now or does some, do you still get the dreaded rejection letter? Um, I, st- I still get the dreaded rejection letter. That's part of, I think that's part of every process. There's no avoiding that. Um, <laughs> so what's it, what's it like now then? Like say, when, you know, you, you kind of, you've been in like the year's best and things like that. What's it like now to, to get a rejection letter? Are you still thinking there must have been something wrong or do you sometimes think to yourself, sod them, I know it's good and I'll, <laughs> I'll, go, I'll take it somewhere else? Usually all that, all of that in the span of, you know, 30 seconds. <laughs> um, but I think that... Um, Usually I, when I get a rejection, I think, you know, that's, there's something wrong with the story that I need to fix. 
I usually don't think, uh, oh, this is what's wrong with them. Why didn't they take it? I usually think, well, let me look at the story again and see if I can improve it. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a very good answer. David, now, I mean, kind of one of the main reasons we're getting you on is you've got a new book out, a new collection of stories there across the event horizon. Now, and, and what I noticed as well, and I just kind of realised, a little introduction as well by Terry Bisson. So that, I think that's quite a nice circle complete. You know, you've you learned by the guy, you know what I mean? And he's been kind enough to give you an introduction as well. Absolutely. It's, it's so funny because when I was, uh, I was working with Ian Waits, the editor of, of my collection, um, and Ian suggested that I get somebody, another writer, to write my intro. And I don't know what was wrong with me. I couldn't think of anybody. I was thinking, who could I possibly ask? <laughs> and, then, and then somebody mentioned, somebody in my writer's group said, well, what about Terry Bisson? And I said, of course. Uh, so I reached out to Terry, and he was happy to do it. And what an honor to have, uh, to have that introduction by him. So tell us a little bit about the – or tell us first, then, how you got Ian Waits involved. And did you pitch it to him, or did Ian come knocking at your door? Well, you know what, what, what's weird is uh, Ian just sent me an email out of the blue. He was putting together his his new Solaris Rising Two collection. He'd had some success with Solaris Rising One last year, and he um, solicited a story from me. He said, "Do you have anything that that uh, you know you could you could provide for the collection?" So I sent them a story that I'd been I happened to be working on for about a year. I'd say a story called Man Made, and it's about a uh, the idea is. I call it my reverse Pinocchio story in that it's, it's about a, um, an AI that's taken the form of a teenage boy. And the whole story is about the fact that he no longer wants to be human. He wants to be an AI again and, and the reason why he feels that way. So I, I really loaded it with emotion, and, uh, but it took, me year, it took me about a year to, to edit it over and over again until I thought it was in good shape. And, and then Ian, just out of the blue, sent me an email and said, do you happen to have a story for my collection? And I said, well, it just so happens I have this reverse Pinocchio story. So I sent it along. Ian loved it, um, took it. And then a few weeks later, he contacted me and said, hey, would you be interested in, in putting out a, a collection of your stories? And I said, of course. And it went from there. So, so that's the, what, we got, what we got in, in the collection then, David? Yeah, it's 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 fourteen of my my fourteen of my favorite stories, um, and an introduction by Terry Bisson. Uh, and includes in there um, "To Sufrimiento Shall Protect Us," that very dark horror uh, story that was nominated for the Royal Fantasy Award. Um, that one is very dark because it's about torture, and um, uh, it really that that one that one came from a, a political debate I was having with a very dear friend about about uh, how effective torture is. And I thought to myself, you know, wouldn't it be a great story if we simply accepted the premise of that argument and said, all right, let's assume that if you torture someone, it can keep us safe. Let's take that premise and let's write a story around that. And that's what that's <laughs> that's how that came about. Um, so that that story is included in the collection and longing for Langolana is in there as well. That's my my um, first Worgen story. Um uh, which won the years? It, it won the readers' poll in Interzone back in 2006. That one, really, I felt is the one that broke me into the industry. So those two were included, and Snatch Me and Others in there, and um, lots of other uh, great science fiction stories. Because we're going to play on Starship Sova, you know, we're going to play two of yours as well, Tethered and For Love's Delirium Horns, The Fractured Mind. And, and you know what I like as well, David, is when I sometimes when I get your stories, the titles, the titles are just, you know, so strange and bizarre. 
anyways <laughs> do you know what I mean is, do you ponder the titles much or do they just that's the you pick that title and that's going to stick and that's it um, well, I do think a lot about the titles, um, and uh, it depends on the, what I'm going for. For, I know for, for, for example, for Longing for Langalana, I wanted to, this is really um, silly, but I wanted to stick in some Superman references. <laughs> um, because I, whenever, whenever I think of unrequited love, and that's really what, by the way, what the Worgans are all about. It's about unrequited love. You know, it's, it's an emotion that I think all of us can relate to. Um, and I always thought of, of Lana Lang from the Superman comics. Here's, super, here's Clark Kent's young girlfriend from, Car- from, um, from um, Smallville. And at the end, really, he winds up with Lois Lane, and Lana Lang is, is spurned. And I thought, wow, I, I want to work in Lana Lang's name into the story. And that's how I came up with Longing for Lana Lana. And, and there's a Lois in the story as well, by the way. <laughs> um, so that, for that one, that's how I came up with that one. And for, um, for Love's Delirium Haunts the Fractured Mind, that's quite a mouthful. <laughs> I, I had help from two people in my writing writers group. I told them I wanted a very poetic title. And um, we came up with that uh, based on a Lord Byron poem um, that actually, and I, I happen to write it down here, it says, uh, when love's delirium haunts the fractured mind, limping decorum lingers far behind. And it's kind of a, it's a playful quote, and I thought, um, not quite the mood I'm going for. I wanted it to be a bit darker, so I just took it and twisted it a little bit. Um, so that's how that one, that one came about. Well, I'm, so, I'm glad, like you say, Snatch Me and other ones in there. Like you say, we're going to play these two stories well. We're going to have like a, a two-week special with David's work there. But you were also you were telling us as well, David, that you were in The Year's Best as well. You've been in collections like The Year's Best. Yes, yes, um, uh, Tethered appeared in Harwell and Kramer's Year's Best Science Fiction 17. Um, so that was quite an honor. I've been reading that collection for as long as I can remember. And uh, Snatch Me Another was in um, Unplugged, the, the web's best science fiction fantasy. That one was by Rich Horton. Um, so, yeah, I've been in a couple of Year's Best. So, David, the question is now, what's next for you? Well, um, the, the main, one of the main projects I've been working on for a few years now is I, I do want to collect all of these Worgen stories into a, a novel. And I think that it really just would take some minor tweaking because the stories are interrelated. There is, a, there is an arc in the background uh, in all of the stories. So I think that, um, and I've written, um, I guess I've published four of them and I've written six. And I have a novella forthcoming a Worgen novella with Immersion Press that's coming out in July. And, and that one is about first contact with the Worgans. Um, so w- once I put all these together, I think that they'll make a terrific novel. So that's, that's where I'm going. Have you got, as well, Dave, like, have you got a publisher or a, an editor in mind that you would like to kind of pitch these to? I have a few people in mind. I, I don't think I want to say who yet, <laughs> since I haven't approached them. <laughs> but I have a few people in mind. Um, but yeah, I, I, I hope, it, hope it happens. So, are we still are we still involved with the writers' workshop, then, David? Oh yes, I mean they're both uh, dear friends and, and dear colleagues. Um, uh, we meet every I'd say every two or three weeks, and uh, we, we we critique two stories each time we meet, and um, it's just a great group, and it's amazing seeing the progress. Now they're all Hugo nominees, and it's just amazing. Uh, Saladin Ahmed is in there, and he was just nominated for the Hugo, and 
Elijah Don Johnson has a new novel out. N.K. Jemison has an amazing reputation now. It's just amazing seeing the progress that my fellow writers have made over the last few years. Do you know, like I say, we got you on because you did one of my writing courses about, you know, that workshop. And there, there must be different, there must be something there with, with that little group. Like I say, yous are now the top writers, you know what I mean? Like I say, the Hugo nomination there for one of them. Oh, it's just, what's the secret? <laughs> you know, I, th- I think that um, uh, part of it is the process. We have a very regimented process. We have about 10 members and we have, you know, you, you present your story. Everybody gets two minutes to critique. The, the writer has to stay silent during the process. Um, and I think we, we all lift each other. It's, it's strange. Like one person succeeded and then that person helped everybody else succeed. And, and uh, it's just amazing how everybody's progressed. I mean, you know, the kind of question I was going to ask you, and obviously, you know, I'd, Please forgive, but I was thinking, David. You know, can you not just walk away from them now? You know what I mean. You kind of, you, you've kind of topped your game there. You're hitting good strides. Is it not time to kind of leave the pack alone and, and go go out yourself? You know what? Now that you mention it, yeah. <laughs> man, <laughs> no, uh, the, the truth is that I get so much out of it, and, and none of these stories, the ones that we're hearing today, and and none of the stories in my collection. I don't think any of them could have been possible without the group. That's a, I mean, that's a great compliment, you know, for your oh, writer's yeah. workshop, you know, and again, to, to almost need it more so now, you know what I mean? Because like you say, if that was stripped away from you and you mm-hmm. didn't have, you know, the, the kind of support you've got, I wonder what kind of writer you would be. A hack. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it, but it is, it is funny, though, how, um, how important it, it has become. I do think that, you know, I have my initial story and then it really does improve by leaps and bounds i usually sometimes we'll show it to the the group twice and it does improve dramatically with each each version so yeah it's just invaluable to me so david i mean this is obviously a very small niche group you've got here altered fluid is that right is that what it's called yes altered fluid Uh so nobody else can get in there can they how do you how or how does someone get in you know is it kind of one one in one out or does nobody leave (laughs) Have to wait till somebody dies. <laughs> Dead man's boots. <laughs> so you must no. get requests, do you? We do. We get requests all the time, and sometimes yeah, people do move on, and people sometimes folks relocate, um, and uh, you know we'll have a, we'll have an opening, and then we'll have a. Um, um, usually, we like to recruit people that we're familiar with, or even if they're just starting out. We just had, we just added a new member named Sam Miller, who is terrific. He just came out of Clarion. He uh, only he has a, just a couple of sales, but he's just an, an impressive up and comer. And I'm sure that in a couple of years, you're going to be hearing his name quite a bit. You know, it, it must be quite strange for you. As you know, like you say, you've got this little group, you know, you kind of probably know everyone's almost personal habits, you know, tempers and everything like that. Then a new, someone new comes into the fold, you know, do you have a little talk beforehand, you know, whether you're bringing someone in and, you know, do you have a vote on it or anything like that? Yes, it's it's very formal. Oh. <laughs> you have rules. You need a super majority vote to get in. Um, you know, there's this. There's uh, I guess there's a le- ten or eleven of us, and we need like eight or nine votes. I forget what the number is in order to get the person in. And they come in for a few meetings before we decide. We see stories. We see how they take the crit. How they give a crit. You don't want anybody in there who's going to have a thin skin, for example. Uh, make sure that everybody gets along with he or she gets along with everybody. So, yeah, we don't just uh, 
We don't just go based on the writing, believe it or not. There are other factors as well. That would be me, you know, thin skin, very thin skin. Tony, I'm, I'm unfortunate that story. Terrible. You know what I mean? That would be me. Oh, the biggest drama queen ever. I would throw me pens away and storm out and never come back. Don't like criticism. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> David, it's been lovely having you on. Again, oh. like I say, I'm just, I just love your stories. They somehow just get me and they kind of just twist into your brain and I, I kind of, you know, I'd love to see you kind of going further. And again, if you could get, get a novel out, do you know what I mean? That would yes. be, you know, that would be fantastic. That would be, that would be. And thanks so much for having me, Tony. Let me tell you, it's been so much, you, you, you're such a great interviewer that you immediately uh, relax Relax the person, so thank you. Oh yeah, it, 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 I was like to say it's a natural gift, but it's 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 partly due to the whiskey I'm drinking over on this side of the pond because <laughs> we've just got to tell everyone. But David, what time is it on your side of the pond? It's uh, six thirty-five a.m. There we go. Now that's the dedication <laughs> we, we need here. It's like it's nice midday over here. So, but David, honestly, it's been lovely having you on, and like I say, we're going to play these stories over the next couple of weeks and. You can actually find, see, you can, if you're listening, you can see David as well now on YouTube as well in all his glory. <laughs> Luckily, I put a shirt on, you know? Yes. <laughs> that was actually quite funny because I mentioned it to you. I said, oh, David, we'll, we'll do the audio. And I said, then we'll be doing video. Right. I better go and get a shirt on. <laughs> so just, David, before you go then, one last quick question. How do you write? What is your, your work and, you know, do you just kind of... Right, that's the time I've got. I sit down seven o'clock in the evening and write for an hour. Um, I, I do think that it depends on um, my deadlines. <laughs> it's awful. It's an awful thing to say. I really shouldn't shouldn't even be confessing to this. But uh, what will happen is, again, I, I need that deadline. I'll, I'll, the group says the story is due, and then I'll, I'll panic. I'll realize, oh my gosh, I haven't started yet. It's a few days off. I'll have my outline. Without my outline, I can't. I can't even get started. Uh, but then it'll be a, a last-minute flurry, and I'll, I'll pull an all-nighter if need be, and just get the story out. But but it starts really with that outline that I mentioned, that one-page bullet point outline that takes me months <laughs> months to develop. Uh, once I have, I have that, it's it's from there. It's a cakewalk. Well, David, listen, I'm going to let you back, get back to your dear job there. Thank you so much for coming on Starship Sova and this new observation deck. You have been a fantastic star. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tony. I really appreciate it. 
There you go. And you like you say, you could subscribe to the YouTube and when I kind of when we do these interviews and you'll get them there automatically. That would be very fine and very dandy, as they say. So before we get into the main story, which is by, like I say, David, and it is for Love's Delirium Horns, the Fractured Mind, I think we'll have a little talk about, yes, donations. Don't, don't you turn off. Don't you dare. Now, like I say, we kind of hit this and you know, and maybe I'm going over old ground, but all I'm doing this for is to kind of secure Starship Sova's future. Do you know what I mean? Just get some donations in. And, and it's more to, to kind of do the monthly donations. Do you know what I mean? It's just they're the ones that, like, say, two years down or, say, six months down when, you know, kind of things are still maybe looking a little bit iffy. You've still, at least you've still got that kind of bedrock in there to kind of keep this going. And... I mentioned it last week, you know, there's like not that many years kind of out there prepared to kind of, you know, cough some up. Yeah, there is some fine people out there. And there was actually, I'm not going to mention names and everything, but one person went down from a, a fantastic amount to a kind of a normal amount or a lower amount. And then has obviously been listening to the shows. <laughs> I could give him a big hug and then put it back up. Do you know what I mean? And it shouldn't be kind of left to, you know, certain ones who are kind of, you know, please... If you can't, donate to the show. Do you know what I mean? It's Think of it like going out for a drink and one of you isn't kind of dipping in and buying the round in. Do you know? And we all know that, you know, certain people aren't kind of putting it forward and kind of getting everyone a drink. Well, you know, if you've been listening to this kind of show for that long, you know, since we've kind of probably started or even just kind of jumped on board, you know, it'd be lovely to have some support off you. You know, we do all this, everyone who kind of involved, you know, and there's a fair few of them you know, do this just for the love of it, but we need to kind of keep it going. That's the most important thing. Keep it going. If you enjoy what we're doing, like you see, I'm trying to do these other little avenues as well to kind of just make it a bit more special. And that would be fantastic. So please think about a monthly donation. As you know, I give away that kind of the Joe Haldeman, the the video, How to Write Science Fiction with Joe Haldeman. Just any donation, any amount, you know what I mean? doesn't matter what you get. Come over, you, I will send you a link to the Dropbox and you can kind of download that and watch that. Fine and dandy. So please think about donating. When I say it, it means a lot to us. Honestly, I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm not joking here. It bloody means a lot to us. Thank you so much. Anyone that's done that over the past week, over the past couple of weeks, you know, it's like you say, we kind of just smacked into a wall at one point with the, with the kind of finances, you know, it's just like, oh, God, gee, oh, oh, oh. and the wife is kind of straight there. No, nah, that's it, Tone, that's it, you're on your own. So and I don't want to be kind of in that position again, so please think about donating to Starship Sova. Get a thumbs up from me and from everybody else. Thank you. Let's get into the main fiction then, and like I say, it is David Mercurio Riviera for Love's Delirium Haunts the Fractured Mind. Now, David actually mentioned as well, because he, he's, he's got a, a kind of collection out, as you know, in the interview. He got a great review, and I'm going to put that review like link on there as well, so you can kind of go over there. Now, I'll put a link on the David's site, but also onto this review as well, because David, after the interview, says, oh, Tony, I meant to mention this review. And, you know what I mean, if you're, if you're into kind of science fiction, and if you haven't heard, you know, the kind of, that story what I love, Snatch Me Another One, it's in this collection. Please go out and treat yourself to, to that. That would be fantastic. This story is narrated by Joe Samargo. Now, Joe's done a, a few narrations for Starship Sofa. 
if I'd had me notes, I would have been kind of, if I kind of sorted out me notes, I would have been being able to tell you which exact ones. But I know Joe's keen, and he's actually what's really lovely as well. He's keen to do some more. So, Joe, thank you so much. I'll put a link on the Joe's site as well just to say thank you. Joe, you are a bloody star, mate. A bloody star. So, Starship Sova is very proud to present. For Love's Delirium Haunts the Fractured Mind by Mercurio de Rivera. In the highlands overlooking Valles Marineris, human performers had erected a massive red and white striped tent supported by poles planted in the orange dirt. As I steered our buzzer closer, Master Alex pointed excitedly, his light brown hair flapping in the wind, a huge smile stretched across his angelic face. He leapt out of the side of the buzzer as soon as it slowed down, even though it still hovered three feet off the ground, and bolted into a bustling crowd of humans. I took a deep breath to maintain my composure at the sight of so much concentrated beauty. When I caught up with Master Alex inside the arena, the dazzling humans sitting on wooden benches applauded and whistled as I accompanied him down the aisle, assuming me part of the performance. I made it a point not to make eye contact with any of them. I had sworn to Lady Madeline that I'd be able to remain sufficiently clear-headed to tend to Master Alex. A red-headed little human darted in front of me. "'You're disgusting,' she said, scrunching her nose. I couldn't help but smile at her squeaky voice and adorable manner. "'Can it juggle?' she asked Master Alex. "'No, stupid,' Master Alex answered. "'He's no clown. He's my wergen.' I suppressed a laugh. Master Alex was cuter than a Bendelian bug. How it pleased me to hear those two words, my wergen. I had wanted for so long to be his wergen, Lady Madeline's wergen. It meant that they finally considered me part of their family. For five years, I had toiled in Lady Madeline's vineyards in Medusan Valleys, monitoring the field bots and tending to the grapes. I finally ascended to the position of household domestic and caretaker. At last, I could be close to her. For the remaining year of my service, I could bask in her fluttering laughter and honey voice and revel in her devastating beauty. I could prepare Master Alex's meals and play with him. And in the course of performing my duties, I'd enjoy their clever conversations and sweet attentions and learn everything I could about their culture to report back to the Explorata. We settled into our seats, and a moment later, the lights dimmed. Even in the dark, I had to take deep breaths and avoided staring overtly at the throng around us. Individually, their beauty tickled me and made me feel warm and happy. Collectively, it was a force of nature, a blast of hot wind that swept through me and made my head spin. I shut my eyes for a second, but couldn't resist opening them. A male with slicked-back yellow hair over his cranium sat to my left. A female to my right, just in front of us, wore a bright blue dress that exposed the smooth flesh of her back. Another female, much older, flashed a warm smile that made me ache for Lady Madeline. It reminded me of her expression whenever she spoke to Master Alex, and all around us precious wide-eyed children perched forward in anticipation. "'I'm really happy you brought me, Joriander,' Master Alex said." His innocent joy made me feel as if I had floated above the clouds without a buzzer. 
When Lady Madeline learned she had meetings scheduled today with buyers, I had volunteered to bring Master Alex. She had initially objected, expressing concern about how functional I might be among the human crowd, but Master Alex had pleaded for her permission, and I had reassured her that I could still perform my duties. Master Alex punched my arm. His touch brought a familiar tickle. I'm sick of waiting! I wondered why he often behaved this way, but then I remembered that like most humans, he was a single birth. I had grown up with a brother and two sisters in my brood, so I could understand that the boy's loneliness might lead to bad manners. Still, Master Alex loved me. He would call for me whenever he needed anything, and he would actually seek me out to play with them. Look, Joriander! He said with a gleam in his eye. Up-tempo music played, and the parade of performers took to the stage. First came a long-limbed native to Mars, a ten-foot human who wore pinstriped attire and a tall hat that hid his head, unusual since humans ordinarily flaunted their craniums. He introduced other performers, either earthborn humans like Lady Madeline and Master Alex, or the taller Martian variety like himself. One pair of Mars-born humans entered the arena riding atop an enormous four-legged creature with two protruding teeth, floppy ears, and a prehensile limb that jutted from the center of its head. The woolly behemoth blared its disapproval of the whiplashes, but picked up various blocks and rings with its face limb at the direction of its handlers. I marveled at its girth and power. Clever humans had resurrected this animal without our help and I noted from Master Alex's wide eyes and huge grin that, like me, he had never before seen anything like it. Other unimaginable acts followed. An earth-born human wrestled a monstrous feline that resembled Lady Madeline's house cat, only fifty times as large and with sharp fangs. Lanky Mars-born earthers painted their faces white and hid their noses behind a red ball and it seemed as if adjustments had been made to the gravity field on stage that allowed other performers to fly through the air and swing from ropes that dangled from high above us. Although I had grown somewhat accustomed to human company after my six years living in northern Mars and from my prior excursions to Luna and Triton, moments like this reminded me of their alienness. I had no doubt that reporting today's events to the Explorata would prove to be a challenge. The audience remained enraptured by the performances while my attention wandered to the faces around me, to the incandescent smiles and awestruck expressions. A performer blew a whistle that startled me, and that's when I saw them. Two wergens, mated, tethered at the skull, their cords coiled from one open cranium into another. Their handlers shoved them forward until they scuttled into the center of the stage. The audience murmured and clapped and hooted. Several of the humans sitting near us gawked at me, pointing at the leafy coronatus that I wore atop my head. The whistle blew, and the wergens grabbed hold of their cord and flung it around and around, slapping it against the ground while the humans skipped over it and performed feats of agility. I was both mortified and amazed. Although I didn't know the pair, if stationed here they could only be cultural ambassadors like me. Their treatment plainly violated the treaty between our peoples. But as I gazed into their eyes, I saw their love for the man with the whistle. I could imagine them objecting at first, but then relenting before the persuasions of his striking beauty. After a few moments, he blew the whistle again, and the wergans positioned themselves further away from one another, stretching their tethers seven to eight feet apart. 
The humans took turns taking a flying leap over the taut tether and landing with a flourish. One of them climbed atop a bouncing stick that sprung over the cord. The audience erupted in applause. I rubbed my shoulders nervously. Breaking the tether would mean instant death to the pair. What's that thing coming out of their heads? Master Alex asked. I was too embarrassed to discuss Wurgen tethering. At that moment, a cloaked figure rose from the crowd and took center stage. Several performers stopped in their tracks and the music came to an abrupt halt. She had the unmistakable size and shape of a wergen, wide and squat with white scales visible on her bare legs. Perhaps she felt ill because at that moment she raised a blue inhaler to her breathing canal and took a deep whiff. Freedom! she shouted, raising her arms skyward. Freedom from love! She dropped her robes, revealing the glow of a blue body field that grew blindingly brighter. I hurled myself at Master Alex and pinned him to the floor. The deafening explosion rocked the arena and shook the ground, and the world around us went dark. I sat up and gasped. Lady Madeline gently pushed me back down onto the bed. It's okay, Joriander. You're fine. Her touch immediately soothed me and slowed the beating of my racing hearts. Master Alex! He's unhurt. Your body shielded him from the blast. I felt sore and confused, but none of it mattered with Lady Madeline sitting at the edge of my bed. Two medbots skittered across my leg, injecting and slicing at my right foot, which was sheathed in a bloody bandage. Having this additional wergen tech inside the house violated the terms of her contract, but Lady Madeline had obviously made an exception for my injury. Master Alex stood in the corner of the room, wearing a worried expression. Are you okay, Joriander? Can you play with me? Alex, please go outside, Lady Madeline said. I need to talk to Joriander alone. The boy peered over his shoulder at me as he was reluctantly exiting the room. Lady Madeline turned to me. Others in attendance were not as fortunate as you and Alex. They're still pulling bodies from the rubble. I gasped and rubbed my shoulders. I had read reports of similar incidents in colonies on Titan and Earth, but I couldn't believe that it had happened here and that a Wergen could be capable of such an act. I should go help. I shooed away the medbots and tried to sit up without success. <sighs> Spare me the further heroics, okay? Lady Madeline said. You'd only cause a commotion if you showed up down there. No, you Wergens have done more than enough. She glared at me. The medics on the scene didn't have the means, or the inclination, to treat you, so I had you transported here, where your bots could tend to you. I couldn't bear it when she glowered at me this way. It was as if I'd scarred her beautiful face with displeasure. It hurt even more than my throbbing foot. It's just a small group of disturbed fanatics committing these acts, I said. Well, I'm sure that information will be of great comfort to the parents of the victims. Her lips trembled. I'm sorry, I said. Whoever's responsible will be captured and executed by the Explorata. Violence against your people, even the mere thought of it, is anathema to us. You know that. I dared to reach out and touch her arm, but she pulled away and stood up. 
I can't pretend to understand what drives these extremists to turn their back on love. To this, she said nothing. She walked to the bay windows and pulled open the curtains. Phobos hovered partially behind Olympus Mons, and the sky had darkened to a muted blue we knew comforted the humans. The force field my people had erected over the Amazonas quadrangle tinted the orange sky blue and made northeastern Mars fully habitable, just like Europa and Triton and so many other locations that our field tech had transformed into suitable spots for joint human wergen colonization. We'd given humans the galaxy. All that we asked for in return was the pleasure of their company. I've brought in the wergen assigned to the vineyards to tend to the house while you recuperate. Lady Madeline said. You can move to the guest house in the meantime. Tracks? There's no need. I'm already feeling better. The thought of Tracks stepping foot inside the main house made me want to scrub my scales. That Tracks might benefit from my injury and prematurely receive the loving attention of Master Alex and Lady Madeline seemed utterly unfair. He could wait his turn like I did. I lumbered to my feet the medbots scuttling around my ankles. See? I suppressed a wince. I'm fine. Lady Madeline turned and regarded me with a mixture of pity and contempt. Why do you have to be this way, Joriander? She asked. I didn't know how to respond. After a pause, she sighed deeply. <sighs> fine, then. If it makes you happy, go ahead and prepare our dinner. And the kitchen is a sty. She marched past my bed, avoiding my eyes as always. When she got to the doorway, she paused, her back still to me. Thank you, Joriander. Thank you for protecting Alex. She continued down the hall without looking back. Lady Madeline had thanked me. If my foot could have tolerated it, I would have jumped for joy. When I limped down the stairs and into the kitchen, I found tracks there. "'scrubbing the floors on hands and knees. "'Joriander!' he said, startled at my appearance. "'You're not well. You should be resting.' "'Luke can return to the guest house,' I said. "'I'll be in touch tomorrow about the status of the field bots.' "'Trax swallowed hard before responding. "'I can't tell you how pleased I am to see that you've recovered so quickly.' but he spoke these words in our native tongue, which made his true feelings quite evident. Has Lady Madeline approved my reassignment? Don't question me, Trax. Your day will come, I said. In the meantime, you can serve the term in the fields like I did. Why can't we both? You know why. Lady Madeline had specifically negotiated the terms of our assignment here, forbidding more than a single wergen at a time from staying inside the house. What if she decides to move off-world? What if I never get what's coming to me after all my sacrifices? His jaw dislocated and clicking left and right. How can you expect me to simply walk away from such beauty? I'm sorry, Trax. He whirled around and stormed off out of the kitchen onto the veranda. I surveyed the counters littered with dirty dishes and spoiled food that Trax had failed to refrigerate. He knew nothing about the human's exotic diet the proteins they consumed from the flesh of other creatures. It would take me several hours to clean and reorganize. Of course, bots could have accomplished the same task in a few minutes, but my people had attached some conditions to the technology that they provided Lady Madeline. 
She was required to interact with me regularly. That meant allowing me in her home and not using bots to replace the labor I provided. I didn't think Lady Madeline had exactly lived up to the spirit of the bargain, given how often she retreated to her room whenever I worked inside the house. After I finished in the kitchen, I escaped to the veranda overlooking the vineyards and sat on a stone bench to rest my foot. I munched on some sweet chopra. The warm breeze made me sleepy, and just as my eyes started to flutter, a rustling in the grapevine startled me. I rose and leaned over the edge. It was difficult to see in Phobos's dim moonlight, but something scuttled in the dusty path between the vines below me. Since the field bots didn't operate at night, I could only assume that tracks had deigned to intrude once again upon the sanctity of the main house. The clunk of heavy footsteps grew louder, and a figure emerged, shorter and wider than tracks, but unmistakably Wergen. Who are you? I said. What do you want? Joriander. I didn't respond. Are the humans asleep? The voice sounded familiar, but I couldn't place it. How do you know my name? You don't belong here. He stepped out of the darkness, the porch lights illuminating his face. Joriander, it's me, Corte. My brother. The Explorata had assigned him to the colonization of Longalana, a planet hundreds of light years away. When last I heard from him, he had been matched with a mate. I never imagined that I would see him again. You weren't tethered? I said, stating the obvious. My mate spurned me, he said. He gazed towards the heavens as if it were Longalana orbiting Mars and not Phobos and Deimos. A lovely mate with a lovely name. Chimera, my perfect genetic match. And yet, when she first saw me, she fled into that world's scarlet grasslands. She claimed to be hopelessly in love with a human, so deeply in love that she refused to tether with me. I unlocked my jaw in shock. Yes, we loved humans, but no Wergen would ever spurn his or her genetic match. We all bore a responsibility to tether and to propagate. It was a sobering experience, he continued speaking as he climbed the stone steps up to the veranda. I left Longalana at the first opportunity. And in colonies across the Milky Way, I've met others of our kind who have suffered the same type of humiliation. I can't believe this. Corte laid his hand on my shoulders in greeting. Do you remember studying Bobtech together on Werg? Before our encounter with humans, if only we could go back to those days when we could proudly call ourselves Wergen. He reached and plucked a chopper leaf out of the bowl on the ledge. What about you, brother? How did you wind up here? I spent some time on Triton, a satellite in the outer solar system, I said, assisting a human in his search for his missing mate. Can you imagine? Nothing drove home how truly alien the humans were more than the notion of untethered mates. But then I remembered Corte's situation, how his mate had refused to tether with him, and thought it best to change the subject. When I returned to the inner system, the Explorata assigned me to work with Lady Madeline and to continue our study of human culture. Why are you here, Corte? After a long pause, he said, I came here for a very specific purpose, brother. I'm here to free you. Free me? I laughed. From what? Do you know how many wagons envy me for this position? 
Don't you see what's happened to you? I don't understand. You've been enslaved and you don't even realize it. What you feel around humans, that giddiness, that false happiness, is purely the result of biochemical processes we don't understand. As are all emotions. I glanced back to see if any lights had turned on inside the house. Corte, you need to leave. If someone were to see you... He reached into his robes and removed a metal inhaler and displayed it to me. This is a suppressor. I took a step back at the sight of the blue device, the same type of inhaler the circus murderer had used. No. Take a deep, single breath, and it will allow you to view the humans through unfiltered eyes for several days. It affects the cell swaths of the upper mandible. We don't understand how human seduction works on us, but this compound blocks the neural receptors and allows us to resist their charms. You're one of them, I said. A member of my brood, my own brother. This can set you free. I shook my head. We shouldn't be trying to free ourselves from love. We should be celebrating it. What I feel for Lady Madeline and Master Alex brings me great joy, Corte. Corte's face contorted in disgust. Listen to yourself. Master Alex, Lady Madeline, they are not your masters, and you were not born to be subservient to them. When he saw my downcast eyes, he said, I know that their presence makes you feel good, but is it truly love if it's physiological? Irresistible? You can say that about a father's love for his offspring, about... What you feel is unnatural, he said. We're on the verge of being conquered, Joriander, by a false love. His words made no sense. We are the one that offered them our bots and field tech and ships in exchange for their companionship. The humans didn't demand this. We're at war. You just don't know it. He had the desperate air of a mortally wounded soldier. We're losing the desire to breed and propagate. It's the end of our species. And what a miserable end it is. Taking our last breaths is fatuous, fawning. Lower your voice. Pathetic slaves. And we don't even realize it. Don't you think the Explorata considered all this when negotiating the joint venture compact with Earth? This is why we only have a small number of wagons stationed on any particular colony. The members of the Explorata who negotiated those agreements are no more immune to the humans' charms than you are. It was the humans who demanded caps on the numbers of wagons permitted in any colony. They were being cautious. The feared invasion and conquest. It wasn't fear of conquest that drove their demands. He smiled angrily. All this time living with them, and you still don't understand, do you? They loathe us. The mere sight of us sickens them. I couldn't accept this. Yes, we sometimes made the humans uncomfortable, but Lady Madeline and Master Alex had great affection for me. You're wrong. Is this love? He said. His eyes darkened and swirled, and I realized he wore recording lenses. He projected a holographic image of the tethered wergans performing on stage, the female wergan stepping out of the audience, the blinding flash that preceded the explosion. Now others can learn of the indignities and of the normal sacrifices that have been made. Others of our kind, not yet exposed to these humans, can see the dangers. And they can understand that there's reason to hope. We can still conquer love, Joriander. What about the innocent? 
there's nothing innocent about them. And I'm not asking you to kill them, though they deserve it. His lenses flickered and the projection shut off. I'm here only because you're my brother and you deserve to be free. He placed the inhaler in the palm of my hand and closed my fingers over it. Take this and use it, and then spend a few minutes with your beloved slave masters. If you still feel that same undying devotion towards them, so be it. But the suppressor will allow you to break the spell that binds you to them, Joriander. At last you'll be able to hate. That's what we're supposed to aspire to? Hatred? Not hate for hate's sake, but hate for what it represents. Freedom. The freedom, the dignity of being true to ourselves. My feelings are true. Then you have nothing to fear. He pressed his hand against my chest as if to feel the beating of my upper heart. There's a revolution coming. I hope you'll be a part of it. He leaned in and whispered, Freedom. Freedom from love. With those words, he turned and made his way into the vineyards. And as his silhouette disappeared into the cool night, I knew only fear. Fear of what he might do next. The next morning, I sat in my room and stared at the metal inhaler in my hand. Corte's ravings had kept me awake all night. His suggestion that we were somehow at war with the humans was madness. Our technological superiority was beyond question. With a simple command, our bots could destroy Earth and every human in the joint colonies in one fell swoop. Yes, the humans elicited profound feelings in us. No one could resist their beauty and cleverness. But why was this wrong? We felt what we felt. No, best to dispose of this drug and forget Corte's troubled words. Could all of this be the result of what happened with his mate on Longalana? Could she truly have refused to tether with him? Then I thought about the tethered wergens at that show yesterday. The love and devotion on their faces as they debased themselves in front of the human audience. My hands shaking, I slid my fingers along the side of the inhaler and viewed myself in the mirror. Humans constantly reminded themselves of their beauty by studying their reflections in this manner. But I only saw the ugliness of the self-doubt in my visage. How could I go about my daily chores wondering whether my feelings for Lady Madeline and Master Alex were real? And what did it say about me that I even entertained such thoughts? I loved them. Of that I had no doubt. Surely my love could withstand whatever temporary numbing effect this chemical provided. I placed the inhaler over my nasal canal and took a deep whiff. Joriander! Master Alex screeched from the hallway. I shoved the inhaler beneath my sleeping mat just as he flung open the door. It's playtime, he said. I followed him downstairs to the living room where Lady Madeline waited for me. I felt off balance, as if the floor beneath me had a slight tilt to it that I'd never noticed before. How can I serve you, Lady Madeline? She cringed as I approached. Keep Alex busy for the next couple of hours. I have calls to make to buyers in the Amazonas Quadrangle. She seemed unfamiliar somehow. Normally she had an aura about her, warm, soft lighting that shimmered along the edges of her body. But now I just saw sallow flesh and a pronounced sneer on an alien face. About yesterday, she said. I'm sorry if I was a bit short with you, but you have to understand, I was in shock. I still am. She paused. 
It might be best if you don't go into town today to run any errands for me. It might be dangerous, given what's happened. Normally, I would have been touched by her concern for my well-being, but today it all seemed... different. I had a better sense of her real apprehension. She simply wanted to protect her Werrigan servant, her property. Why are you just standing there, Joriander? she said. I would usually exult in her attention, the fact that she'd addressed me directly by name, but today I recognized that she simply wanted me out of the way, intending to master Alex as quickly as possible. I asked you a question, she said. I'm fine. Then get to it. Alex is waiting outside. I made my way out the kitchen doorway to the veranda, then down the stairs to the dirt path that led through the vineyards. The sunlight and fresh air would help clear my head. Alex had gotten a head start and raced ahead of me, swerving in and out from behind the plants. He'd switched into one of his costumes and activated a VR bracelet that sent miniature spaceships buzzing around his head while he swatted at them with a hollow sword. Whatever effect Corte's drug had on me, I still found Alex adorable. I still found his imagination amusing. Joriander! He said. He raced around me wielding his sword and pretending to stab me with it. Get down on your knees, alien! Normally I would have complied in an instant, but today I found his request distasteful. I said bow down! His fleshy lips sneered. His sickeningly smooth-skinned face took on a grotesque expression. I'm still not feeling well, Alex. Shut up! He screamed. Bend down! Run ahead and chase some VR ships. His alien face turned a red shade. Why won't you play with me? He stabbed at my bandaged foot with his sword, and I recoiled from the pain. Without thinking, I shoved him backwards, and he landed hard against the ground, his head snapping back and hitting a rock. He bawled like a wounded desert trog, and blood trickled down the side of his temple. His howl startled me out of my stupor. What had I done? I picked him up and staggered towards the house, signaling to the medbots which awaited us on the porch alongside Madeline, who had no doubt heard Alex's screams. He struggled in my arms. What happened? Did you fall? She said, snatching him from me. Joriander! He... he... He said. He gulped in heaps of air. Madeline held him still while the medbots swarmed over him, stitching the wound and spraying it with disinfectant. Jor... Jor... Joriander's right here, Madeline said. Now hush. Water trickled from his eyes down his smooth face. And after a few minutes of soft crying, the words finally came out. He pushed me! Joriander pushed me! Madeline paused and looked at me apologetically. Then she turned back to the boy. Alex! She leaned down so her face was only inches from his. Stop it! You know I don't like it when you fib. Her scolding tone shocked the boy out of his crying jag. Joriander loves us. He risked his life to save you, she said. Why, he couldn't hurt us even if he wanted to. Isn't that right, Joriander? I nodded, 
but instead of feeling happiness at Madeline's faith in me, I felt only a deep shame. When I went to bed that evening, I resolved never again to use the inhaler. What I had done to Alex was monstrous, unforgivable. Corte's drug, I realized, didn't free me from anything. It distorted the real world. It transformed beauty into hideousness and suppressed my true feelings. No, it was Corte and the misguided rebels who needed to be freed from the effects of this drug. I slept late. Perhaps another side effect of the inhalant. So I was surprised Alex hadn't come bursting through my door the next morning, barking orders at me to play with him. Because the drug's effects could last several days, I decided to avoid Alex and Madeline and devote the day to scrubbing the floors and supervising Trax's works in the fields. It wouldn't be too difficult to limit my interactions with them until I felt more like myself. I strode past Madeline's room and poked my head in. She'd made her bed today. I heard voices downstairs, Alex shrieking a command at someone. This was unusual since he never spoke in such a manner to his mother. I descended the winding staircase to the living room. I found Madeline sitting on the couch, two wergens wearing the green uniforms of the Explorata on each side of her. The officer's eyes flitted in my direction, then returned to staring at her adoringly. Here he is, she said to the officers. One of them made a gesture with his fingers without taking his eyes off of Madeline, and several dozen security bots skittered past my feet and up the staircase. Five remained behind and surrounded me. Joriander, one of the officers said. Lady Madeline summoned us because of a serious charge that has been leveled against you. You were seen consorting two nights ago with someone, an individual believed to be connected to the rebels. I froze. Someone had seen me with Corte? Madeline stood up and approached me. Tell me it's not true. I'm devoted to you, Madeline. Completely, with every fiber of my being. Did you meet one of them on my property? I condemn them. I reject what they stand for. You know that. Answer my question! At that moment, the bot scuttled down the stairs and into the living room, carrying the metal inhaler I had hidden under my bed matting. One of the officers plucked the inhaler from the bot's pincers and held it at a distance, as if it were a poisonous purpuffer. Madeline's brow furrowed, and she placed a hand over her mouth. I gave you what you wanted. I let you in my house. I left my son in your care. Spittle spewed out of her mouth, and her contorted face accentuated her alien features. Her savage brow and round hairy cranium, the skin-covered bone that jutted out of the center of her flat, scaleless face. And this is how you repay my kindness? Kindness? I had trouble at that moment, recollecting a single instance of kindness or compassion in my time with her. How could I ever have seen things so differently? I've done nothing but serve her faithfully, I said. I had to avert my eyes, not because of her beauty, but because I couldn't bear her hideousness. He's one of them, she announced and turned her back to me. Get him as far away from my son as possible. Madelon, I said. One of the officers shoved me forward as I continued to shout her name. 
and as they led me out the front door, one of the officers said to the other, To be surrounded by such striking beauty, and to throw it all away. I spotted Alex on the veranda as we exited the house. He was dueling with tracks, barking out orders to him in a sharp, unpleasant tone that was difficult to tolerate even from this distance. Trax, smiling ecstatically, looked in my direction. His smile faded, and I knew at that instant that he had been the one who spotted me talking with Corte. He had been the one who reported me to Madeline. We're blinded by love, I said. The officer set down two bowls filled with salt pellets and Mendelian bar roots. I lifted up the deep dishes from the table and poured their contents down my gullet, storing the food in my fagel pouch so I could continue speaking while I ate. <laughs> now you decide to talk, he said. The officer was young, a fresh recruit with barely hardened scales. A bit late for that, don't you think? Perhaps. I'd refused to answer their questions because I knew that they had no interest in hearing the truth. The truth of our subjugation to the humans. Teams of doctors and diplomats had tried to persuade me to reveal what I knew about the rebels, but I refused to tell them anything about my brother, about the coming revolution. Instead, I urged them to try out the suppressor, to see the humans as they truly were, but this only produced shaking heads and whistles of disapproval and further medical evaluations. The drug, they insisted, had damaged my neural swaths. It had skewed my perception of the human's true beauty. They even tried to seduce information out of me through human interrogation, but the lingering effects of the inhalant protected me. My questioners were unaware of the temporary nature of my immunity. How much longer could I resist? Corte had said the drug's effect would only last several days. Let me ask you something. I said. What good is love if it's unreciprocated? What purpose does it serve other than to debase us? You're speaking nonsense, he said. And treason. But I could tell, by the way he rubbed his shoulders, that my question had shaken him. When I look back at how misguided I was, the years I wasted, I said. This is not a productive use of your time. I suggest that you clear your mind and savor your meal. The fluorescent light flickered and the door irised open. A dozen bots scuttled into the room. The young officer accompanied me down a long, white-walled corridor and we entered a vacant room with a chair at its center. He guided me to the seat and a force field strap activated around the armrests and legs, holding my wrists and feet in place. One of the walls was made of glass, and behind it sat an audience of several dozen humans, most of them, I had been told, relatives of the victims of the circus blast. The Explorata officer froze at the sight of the mostly human crowd, and I, too, felt a wave of titillation wash over my cranium. The suppressor's residual effects were waning. And then I saw them. Madeline and Alex occupied the front row with tracks. She stared at me impassively. I was her wergen. It made sense that she'd feel obliged to attend. At that moment, I spotted a familiar face on the other side of the glass, standing guard in the rear behind the seated humans, dressed in an Explorata uniform. Corte.
He'd come to Mars for another reason besides freeing his brother. He'd apparently infiltrated the Explorata's ranks long ago. So maybe we did still stand a chance. Maybe someday we would be free from love. He gazed at me with an intense concentration that indicated his recording lenses were activated. A black bot skittered up my leg and torso and rested on my left shoulder. Alex jumped to his feet and pointed excitedly in my direction. I felt the old, familiar rush in my hearts and in my head at the prospect that he might ask me to play with him. Then I realized he was pointing at the bot on my shoulder. His mother pulled him back, seemingly scolding him. Just seeing Alex made me want to smile and laugh. No! Stop it! I took deep breaths and tried to draw on specific memories from when I had seen them after using the suppressor. Madeline's scowl, her contempt for me, messed Alex's screeching orders in disrespect. A spark of hate came back, and I tried to make it glow brighter inside my head. Madeline sat there with tracks at her side. I thought I saw something in her moist eyes. A trace of regret? Sorrow? But then she blinked and it was gone. The bot on my shoulder released a long syringe from its carapace and plunged it between the scales on my jaw. I winced, and the humans leaned forward in anticipation. It reminded me of the audience at the circus. A warm tingle coursed through my body, though I couldn't say whether it was the result of the injection or the pleasure that I felt at bringing joy to these humans at this moment. Fight it! The audience became blurry. That was good. Maybe if I couldn't see them clearly, I'd be able to hold on to my blessed hatred. Maybe I could nurture it and make it grow and take my final breaths with dignity as a free wergen. I searched for Corte in the fuzzy crowd, but I couldn't find him. I saw only tracks and his silly grin as he played on the floor at Lady Madeline's feet with Master Alex. Hold on to it! I struggled to embrace the sweet hate, but the only one I truly loathed was Trax, and I hated him profoundly, with all of my heart. I hated him because he got to be with Master Alex and the beautiful Lady Madeline. I hated him because he had taken my place. There you go. Don't forget, as, as usual, copyright is David's. Look out next week for another story by David again. Links on to David's book if you want, please. That would be lovely. You go and, you know, like say, there's a few writers, kind of short story writers that are just always get me excited. You know what I mean? And David's one of them. Ted Kuzmaska is another one. Jason Samford. You know, there's a group of these kind of guys that are just like hit the mark every time. And David's certainly one of them. David, thank you so much. Joe, you're a star, sir. Thank you. Well, that is show 286. Thank you so much for listening. And, you know, thank you for dipping in there and helping support the Starship Sofa. If you haven't, you know, think about it. We all need a drink. Get to the bar. Get to the bar and it's your round. Come on. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Heroes.
survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.